We are so honored and privileged to have Dr. Ranko Stefanovich, who is the professor of New Testament at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University. The first time that I met Dr. Stefanovich, and he probably prefers to be called Pastor Stefanovich, was in 2012 when I first came here to the Carolinas. He probably doesn't know this, but I've quoted him so many, so many times and I, I never met the man until I came here in 2012. Because every year um, I like to take one month out of my work and go do what I really love best, and that is to hold a series of evangelistic meetings. And I love doing that, and I often refer to his writings on the book of Revelation in some of the information that I share with people as we study the book of Revelation. Pastor Stefanovich earned his doctorate degree from Andrews University in 1995 in the area of New Testament and with a specific focus, obviously, in the study of the book of Revelation. Prior to joining the faculty at Andrews University, his background is really from the former country of Yugoslavia. And the re reason I say the former country of Yugoslavia, between the 1980s and the 1990s, those of you who will remember those tumultuous days when Yugoslavia eventually became broken up into six countries. And so I'll just give you a little bit of geography here. Now, today, it's broken up into Herzegovina, uh, Govina, uh, Croatia, Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Slovenia, where our First Lady of the United States comes from. Pastor Stevanovic taught and chaired the Department of Religious Studies at Canadian University College from 1996 to 1999, and then he came to the Department of Religion at Andrews University and served in that department from 1999 to 2009, and then transitioned to the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, and where he has been since then. He is a recipient of a number of teaching awards of excellence, and in 2013, he was given the very distinguished Jan Andrews Medallion by Andrews University for his contribution to the Church in the area of scholarship, and especially in the book of Revelation. He has authored a very uh, comprehensive book on the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a 670-page documentary on Revelation, which is used by as the textbook in many Adventist colleges and universities. His most recent one that you can purchase probably from the Adventist Christian Book Center is Plain Revelation, A Reader's Introduction to the Apocalypse. I thought I'd throw in that little advertisement for the ACBC. You know, his lectures on Revelation are featured on 3ABN. He is a much sought-after speaker. And the reason I say that we are so privileged to have him here today is just shortly before he was to come here, uh, his wife, Estera, had a, a bad fall and broke multiple bones, and yet she told him that their daughter could come and take care of her, but please go 
and fulfill God's calling. He shared with us a wonderful message this morning to our pastors, and we are just so honored to have him here as he comes and he shares his message to you this morning on the Lamb and the scroll. Would you join me as we have a word of prayer with him? Pastor Savanovich. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, here is your servant leader, Pastor Ranko Stefanovich. And as he opens up the word of God, O Lord, may your Holy Spirit open our hearts so that we will receive the precious truths of your word. May we see the revelation of Jesus Christ and be drawn closer to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I thought when I was here six years ago that weather was much better than this one. So I'm disappointed now. Thank you for this warm welcome. And you said you are honored and privileged. I don't know why, because you missed my accent. For six years, huh? You didn't it. I must tell you, I am honored and privileged. When you called me, would I come? Actually, that was the only date that, that I had available. I am booked until the end of the summer next year. But I did not have any, any difficulty. My wife wanted to come. I said, you have to come to the most beautiful place under the world. And really... I mean that. When I was asked about the topics, my presentations here, the first thing I know that people are expecting from me about the book of Revelation. But we did it six years ago. And in addition, I don't know if you are aware of not, from January to March 2019, next year, we will be studying the book of Revelation. After 30 years, 3-0, after 30 years, finally, we have Sabbath school quarterly on the book of Revelation. For 30 years, we didn't study that book. I wrote it, and that's why I said, it will be too much now to speak about the book of Revelation. But I would like to suggest to you the companion books for Sabbath school quarterly. That second book, that Elder mentioned would be a companion book for Sabbath School Quarterly, and it's available here in the, in the bookstore. But I was thinking about the topic, and I decided to share with you during these five days my favorite topic. Actually, this is our greatest need, according to the prophet of our church, Ellen White, is the need of the Holy Spirit. So we will move step by step. We will try to cover all the aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit. And maybe there is somebody here sitting among us who would say, Oh Lord, this is what I needed to hear. Because I know how much this topic actually transformed my personal life. But we will start with the book of Revelation today. 
Do you have your Bibles with you? May I see it? May I see it? Please, please. Electronic version accepted. Please, please, can you hold it? Can you hold it? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this book. We are here not to listen to the word of man, to hear what a human being can say to us about interesting things of the Bible. We are here to hear your voice, so please speak to our hearts. We are seeking and we are asking for a presence here in our midst. And Father, we pray all of this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Since you are holding your Bibles in your hands, we would like to start with the basic, with step number one for the understanding of the Holy Spirit. And I know that you expected everything else, but not this. So since you have your Bibles, even though we will have the text there, I would like you that you open your Bibles, book of Revelation, chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1. As you know that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, they contain what we call the messages to the seven churches. Please keep in mind. Can I challenge you? I hope we still remember what we studied six years ago. Oh boy, too long, huh? There are not seven letters. There was only one letter. Seven messages. Because its church had to read all the seven messages. There is a reason for that. Now, once Jesus communicated through John those seven messages, chapter 4, verse 1, we read, John is telling us, After these things I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you the things that must take place after these things. In these last three lines, that we have the words of Jesus, we learn something. That up to this point, John the Revelator was in the vision on earth. Because those seven churches were located on earth in the Roman province of Asia, known as Asia Minor. Now Jesus invites him to go up there. And he says, I would like to show you what will take place after these things. After what things? After the situation in those seven churches. So now John, the revelator, is to witness about what will happen in the future, from his time perspective, the history of the church and the history of the world where the church is located. But before Jesus reveals to John in a paranomic survey of what will happen from the first century until the time of the second coming of Christ, we have a very important introductory vision that is recorded in chapters 4 and 5. 
So Jesus promises to John to show him the survey of history. But before the future, future history is revealed, John is taken into the heavenly throne room of the heavenly sanctuary, where he is given a glimpse of Christ's exaltation on the throne at the right hand of the Father. In such a way, we are given the heaven's perspective on the meaning of the future events that are revealed in the book. As history unfolds, Jesus Christ, who rules as a sovereign over the universe, will bring the history of this world to its conclusion and decisively deal with the problem of sin. Chapter 4 and 5 is intended to assure God's people that the destiny of this world is not in the hands of any single person or a group of nations. It's in the hand of God. He is in control of history. As you know, brothers and sisters, that the central issue in the ongoing great controversy between God and Satan is regarding who has the right to rule. You remember that at the very beginning there was a rebellion against God's sovereignty. And God's rule. And since then, for thousands of years, our planet Earth has been caught within that great conflict. Now, the purpose of the heavenly council that is uh, gathered in the heavenly throne room, and John John is watching and observing, and he's about to to write down in chapters 4 and 5. The purpose of that heavenly council is to settle once for forever the question of God's rightful rule over the universe. Thus, Revelation 4 and 5 portrays a decisive event in that conflict, one of the most important events in the history of the universe. And that's the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the heavenly throne as a result of his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. Don't be afraid to say amen. That's not against the Bible. So now, John is taken in vision to the heavenly throne room. As he's observing there what is going on there in the heavenly throne room, he can see the attendees there in the room. The first thing that he observes is the heavenly throne. Majestic. It's a central piece of everything taking place there in the throne room. Everything is in front of the throne, behind the throne, aside of the throne, around the throne, about the throne, beneath the throne, everything. The throne is the central focus of the vision. And then he sees God sitting on the throne. As he is watching closer, he sees that that throne is not the only throne in the heavenly throne room. He sees 24 other thrones. And on the thrones, he sees 24 elders. Oh, I'm sorry, I need one hour that we talk about 24 elders. Friends, not everything is so easy in the book of Revelation. And people sometimes are confused and struggling how to understand certain scenes and certain symbols of the book of Revelation. But just to briefly explain is that all description of the elders 
pointing that they are not angels. They are not some representatives of different worlds of the universe. They are simply human beings. Especially the fact that on their heads they have the Stephanos crown. You know the word Stephanos? It is how that word, the name Stefanovich, comes. <laughs> oh, now you treat my name with respect, huh? Good. Actually, in the Greek language, it's reflected in the Bible that two words for a crown. One is diadema, from which the English diadem comes. And the second is Stephanos crown, which is not really the royal crown. It's the crown of victory. It's a garland, gold medal, given to the winners at ancient Olympic Games in Greece. You remember when Apostle Paul said, I finished the race. I'm done with the fight. But for me, it's prepared the Stephanos crown that the Lord will give not only to me, but to all those who are rejoicing his coming. You remember the Revelation 3.11? Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the Stephanos of life. You see, that Stephanos of life, that Stephanos crown, it's not promised to angels. Because angels have nothing to win and to wear that crown. It's not promised to anybody else in the universe. It's promised only to God's faithful people, to those who are overcomers, those who will stand firm for Christ and one day be victorious on the sea of glass with with the Lamb. This is one just of tiny details that point that 24 elders are human beings. Now there is a question. 24 numbers... 24 is the number of, symbolic number, is the number of fullness. How did those elders get there to heaven? There is in the Bible only one explanation. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? The number of saints from the Old Testament times, they resurrected. Maybe some of them who resurrected was also John Baptist from the New Testament times. We don't know who they are. You remember that they went to Jerusalem and told those people, the person that you crucified on the cross is the Messiah that you were waiting for. No wonder when Peter on the day of Pentecost started preaching. There are so many people who responded to the gospel message in baptism. According to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul explains in verse 8 that when Jesus ascended there to heaven, he took with him a number of captives to the heavenly places. Because don't expect that those people who resurrected on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, that they died again. They were taken there to the heavenly places to be present there in the heavenly sanctuary to follow and to observe the fairness of God's judgment. And they are present there. Maybe they are even joined by Enoch, by Moses and Elijah. We don't know that. Just speculating. That group is there. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's hard to be lost. 
I hear Adventists start talking how God is a judge. But we need advocate Jesus Christ. Advocate has to defend us. Who has to defend us from God? Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of God? Actually, in the New Testament, Jesus is, is the judge. But he's our advocate. And he's our brother. Oh boy, can you imagine you have to go to the court and the judge is your brother? He's your advocate. How would you feel? I would feel great, even though not great going to the court. In addition to that, we have those representatives of the redeemed humanity. They are on our side. The whole heaven is our side. Oh boy, do you see I'm tempted now to preach a different topic. John also sees there the seven spirits of God which is the symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. Number seven is the number of fullness. It talks about the Holy Spirit, who is universally present and working among God's people. Seven churches. And each message to that church ends with a call, whoever has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. About that, little bit more later. John sees also four living beings. This is a little bit easier because if we go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10, Ezekiel also saw those, those four living beings and he makes very clear that they were cherubim. They are exalted angels who are there before the throne of God. Oh boy, I cannot go more in details about that. In addition to those who are present in the, in the throne room, John sees the myriads and myriads, we would say millions and millions, maybe even billions of heavenly beings who are present there in the heavenly throne room. I didn't see your reaction Maybe you're confused. You're confused about that, you know. What is Jesus doing since year 1844? He's in the heavenly temple. How big is that heavenly temple? Two by two. And that's where he's sitting. That's where, oh, poor people. We are comparing the heavenly temple with our apartment there in Asheville or somewhere. That's how much we can afford. Do you see how big is the heavenly temple? In the heavenly throne room, millions and millions Heavenly beings are present there before God. That's a huge, that's a huge building. As John is watching there, he's telling us that they are all assembled there in the heavenly throne room to welcome Jesus. As he's about to come back, to enter the throne room, and they're there to celebrate his triumph over Satan on the cross of Calvary, and also to witness his installation on the heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father. Now John goes on to tell us about what he witnessed. He's telling us that he witnessed the unceasing worship of the heavenly assembly. Oh, friends, I cannot wait for Jesus to come. When they're in the new Jerusalem, when all saints gather together and the heavenly beings surround us, 
when we will hear the best choir that ever human being could hear his own ears. It's much better than Mormon tabernacle choir. And John somehow had a foretaste of that heavenly music that one day we'll be listening. The worship that John observes starts with the praise by four exalted. We have a quartet here, quartet, okay? Quartet begins, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Which actually is the same that the prophet Isaiah had opportunity to watch in his vision there before the throne, the throne of God. The praise of these exalted angels is immediately followed by the response of the 24 elders as the representatives of the redeemed humanity who fall down and lay their crowns before the throne, acclaiming, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Boy, what a joy. What the atmosphere. But then suddenly, something happens. The magnificent liturgy is suddenly interrupted for a moment, and there is a hush in the throne room as the eyes of everyone in the room focuses on the throne. And there on the throne, John the Revelator sees a scroll sealed with seven seals. And it is laying there on the throne at the right hand of God, as the Greek text indicates to us. John also tells us that the scroll is sealed for the obvious purpose to conceal its contents and keeps them hidden. Since it is sealed, John the Revelator tells us that nobody in the whole universe is open, is able to open the scroll and to look into it. And then, in verse 2, we read, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. The seal scroll most likely stands as a symbolic of God's plan of salvation. It comprises all God's plans for the resolution of the sin problem. If it remains sealed, the plan of salvation remains unrealized. Its taking and opening requires a unique quali- quali- qualifications. Um, I would like if I can get some help. Evidently, there is a problem with the display there. The first line does not show there. I hope that those people can hear me. If the text 
can be moved, moved down. I apologize. I'd like you that you see that you see the text. Okay? Friends, there is a question. What does it mean that nobody in the whole universe is able to open the scroll? If the scroll is the symbol of the plan of salvation, friends, don't tell me that God was not able to solve that plan of salvation just in a moment. By the way, we are Seventh-day Adventists. We have beautiful writings of Ellen White. We have the book of the Patriarchs and Prophets. You remember that? Do you remember when the universe, uh, that the sin appeared in the universe? God could solve all the problems just in a twinkle of an eye. Am I correct? He could solve everything. He could kill Satan, destroy those rebellious angels, and finally everybody would be happy. Would be? You see, according to what John sees, he's telling us that it's not just enough to be divine, to be God, to open this scroll, to put the plan of salvation to its realization. In order to bring the plan of salvation to its realization, for salvation of the human beings, a unique realiz- real, uh, a qualification is needed. It's not just enough to be divine. Yes, you have to be divine, but at the same time, you need the blood of the Lamb. It is therefore understandable why no created or uncreated being in the whole universe fulfilled that qualification. And then we read, as John keeps on describing, telling us, I began to weep much because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The crisis in the throne room was related to Satan's rebellion against God. This planet that was created by God has been for ages under the dominion of the usurper Satan. By usurping the lordship and dominion over the world, Satan became the ruler of this, of this world. The, uh, uh, the planet Earth fell in sin, and with the fall of the human race into the bandage of sin, humanity became lost and hopeless. The weeping of John that we just read expressed the tears of God's people since Adam for the salvation from the bondage of sin. My brother and sister, let's make the biblical text relevant to us. John's tears represented also your tears and the tears of each one of us sitting here. The tear represented the mother on behalf of your children who don't know Jesus Christ. Those tears represent the tears of my brother and sister, you, who just heard the news that you have maybe just few weeks to live left. It's the tears of people who are suffering in different countries, 
is the tears of John, of the parents or the children who have to be there on the tomb, just express the hope that the death and that separation is not forever, that one day God will bring death to its, to its end. So those tears express the tears of each one, which one of us. However, as we read, there is a good news. There are tears, but the tears always are accompanied with the hope. There is a worthy candidate who is found to take the seal scroll and to put the plan of salvation into its realization. One of the elders approaches John, telling him not to weep because the lion from the tribe of Judah, who is the sprout of David, has overcome and is thus able to break the seals and open the scroll because he has conquered. Oh, finally, what was lost with Adam has now been regained by the one who was able to step into the human situation and redeem them by his own blood and life. When John turns around to seize the lion, as he heard about, he actually sees a lamb as having been slain. Why? Because the lion is a symbol of Jesus Christ, so also the symbol of the lamb. The lion shows what Jesus did. He overcame. But the lion tells us how Jesus actually did it. How he overcame. He did not do by the power of a lion. He did it by his sacrificial death on the cross by which he was able to redeem humanity and to win the victory over the death. At that moment, it is the cross that made sense to John that Jesus is the eunuch. It is his victory on the cross that made him worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and relate the heavenly throne, regained the heavenly throne, which he has shared with the Father throughout eternity and which he voluntarily left to come to earth and to die on the cross. Thus Revelation 5 describes in a symbolic language the enthronement of Christ in the heavenly temple after his ascension into the heaven. And when Jesus took the scroll, there is another crescendo there in the heavenly throne room. We read, and he came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden balls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song and they said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's why I have the accent. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign 
on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living beings and the elders, the number which was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive the power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which was in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things which are in them, I heard saying to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living beings kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. Brothers, sisters, this was the climatic moment of the whole scene. As Christ approached the throne, he took the scroll and then he sat on the throne at the right hand of the Father. By taking the scroll... He was made the rightful king over the earth. The destiny, including yours and mine, is placed into his hands. I would like at this moment, since our time is very limited, I would like to read from one book. You're familiar with that, with that book very, very much. It comes from the prophet of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm sorry, I don't have hesitation to say she's the prophet in the biblical sense. Because she, in the vision, observed the same scene that John had observed and recorded in chapters 4 and 5. Actually, this is from the last pages of the book of Desire of Ages. And I'm sorry, the first line is always missing there. We will have to fix it for tomorrow. I would like you that, that somehow you relax, you enjoy with me, that you see how Ellen White actually, in the book Desire of Ages, how she portrays the same event. It gives us some more insights into meaning of what took place there in the heavenly throne room. She said, all heaven was waiting to welcome Savior to the celestial courts. As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. Remember we talked about that? The heavenly host with shouts and acclamations of praise and celestial song attended the joyous train. There is the throne, and around it the rainbow of promise. The cherubim and seraphim, the commanders of the angel host, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds, they all assembled the heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of those sinless realms over which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome the Redeemer. They are eager to celebrate his triumph and to glorify their king. But he, Jesus, waves them back. Not yet. He cannot now receive the coronet of glory and the royal robe. He enters into the presence of his father. He points to his wounded head. 
the pierced her side, the mared feet, and he lifts his hands, bearing the prints of nails. He points to the tokens of his triumphs. He presents to God the wave sheaf, those raised with him, as the representatives of that great multitude who shall come forth from the grave at his second coming. He approaches the Father with whom there is joy over one sinner that repents, who rejoices over one with singing. Before the foundation of the earth were uh, laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This pledge Christ has fulfilled when he died on the cross of Calvary. The voice of God is heard proclaiming that justice is satisfied. Satan is vanquished. Christ's toiling, struggling ones on earth are accepted in the beloved. The father's arms encircles his son. And the word is given, let all the angels of God worship him. With joy and expressible, rulers and principalities and powers acknowledge the supremacy of the prince of life. The angel hosts prostrate themselves before him while the glad shout fills all the courts of heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive the power and the riches and the wisdom and the strength and honor and glory and blessing. Songs of triumph mingle with the music from angel harps till heaven seems to overflow with joy and praise. Love has conquered. The lost is found. Heaven rings with voice in lofty strains proclaiming blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. You can say, Amen. It was then that all authority and sovereignty was bestowed upon Jesus Christ. You remember what he said in Matthew 28, 18, All the power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It was given far above all the rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1. According to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1, is that the main point of everything that we are saying and teaching is this, that we have a such high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Finally, what was lost with Adam, it has now been regained with victorious Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ, our Savior, he's now our mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. 
And through Him, we, fallen human beings, we have free access to God. We don't need sacrificial lamb offerings. We don't need the Old Testament priests to come into the presence of God. As Apostle Paul said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with the confidence, can I repeat it one more time? Let us then with the confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us bring this to our conclusion. Because I know that some of us are sitting here and thinking, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? We already explained that this is an introduction to our topic of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, whenever people talk about the Holy Spirit, they begin with the Holy Spirit, but that's not so. We first have to understand why the Holy Spirit had to come down to this, to this earth. By the way, many places in the New Testament, they show clearly that this enthronement of Jesus and his inauguration into his priestly and royal ministry in the heavenly throne room as our king and priest actually took place after his ascension to heaven on the day of Pentecost in the year of 31. May I ask you a question? When we use the word Pentecost, what has come to your mind? Give me just two words. The Holy Spirit. Okay, let's, let's, go, let's go there. Let's go there. If you open the book of Acts, chapter 2, you know what happened in Acts chapter 2. As Jesus commissioned his disciples, telling them, before you step into your task that I'm commissioning you to do, first you have to go to a room there and wait. Oh boy, sometimes it's very hard to wait. We always want to do something for God. It's very hard to wait, but God is never in rush. Even when everything is sold, it will be very hard to wait for 1,000 years. You know what I'm talking about? That finally everything is solved. It's hard for us to wait, but God is never in rush. He said, go there and wait. And they're waiting for 10 days. And they cannot wait. They have even to choose who will take the place of Judas there. It's very hard to wait. We always have to do, even on Sabbath day, we feel guilty because we do nothing. We have to do something, always something. Actually, Jesus commissioned them. They went there to the upper room, and you know what happened? After 10 days, as they were praying, praise God, they were praying, coming together, united. Amen. They experienced something supernatural that happened upon them. We call, them, we call it the coming of the Holy Spirit. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, they come there to the city on the main square of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is crowded, crowded with the people of mixed feelings. Some people felt guilty they crucified somebody. Maybe he's the Messiah. 
The many pilgrims coming from all over the Roman Empire, everybody's there. And they started preaching to those people. Surprisingly, we had many nationalities. You don't understand what took place on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem if you were not if you never visited Andrews University. My accent is just a blessing that you have. Okay. One hundred different nationalities. This is what happened in Jerusalem. And can you imagine? Peter is preaching with his Galilean accent. And nobody has the problem to understand what he's talking about. Somehow God inserted translator in the ears. So this modern technique is nothing comparing what happened on the Pentecost. And people, you know, the people always, like in the church, people, when they see young people are singing, they are criticizing them. That, that's nothing new. It was in Jerusalem. As apostles are preaching, they're standing there. They're drunk. They're drunk. And Peter stood up and he said, brothers and sisters, we are not drunk. And then Peter told them, that's what we will be studying tomorrow. What you are witnessing here is the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Joel. We will study that prophecy tomorrow. He said, and this is exactly, Peter said, what happened. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, 32 to 36, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What is that that happened on the day of Pentecost, according to Peter? What did happen? What did Peter say? He said, our Lord, whom you crucified, he has just been enthroned there in the heavenly places. He sat at the right hand of the Father. And he has been given all the power and authority over the whole universe, including the planet Earth. Probably there are some people questioning Peter. They said, how do you know that? He says, we know that. How? Because he promised to us, when he sits on the throne, he will send us the Holy Spirit. And this is just what happened to us. Do you see that? Peter said that the greatest evidence that Jesus was enthroned is that having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he sent the Holy Spirit down to this, to this earth. My brothers and sisters, okay, I didn't finish the text. It says, uh, it, oh, okay, I read, I read that, 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 that text. Brothers and sisters, why was it possible for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost? Why? What had to happen before? Jesus had to be 
there inaugurated into his post-Calvary ministry as our priest and our king. That's exactly what Satan claimed to have. Satan claimed to be the prince of this world, representing people before God, as we see in the book of Job. Now, what was lost with Adam, what Satan assumed to have, now it was regained by Christ. It is only, only the exaltation of Jesus on the heavenly throne when he assumed his role as the king and the priest and reclaimed the planet earth for God that the Holy Spirit could come down to this earth as Jesus promised to his disciples in the Gospel of John chapters 14 to 16 and we will be studying day after tomorrow. Can I say something? You have full right to disagree. Without the enthronement of Christ in the heavenly places. Can I repeat one more time? Without the inauguration of Jesus into his post-Calvary ministry as our king and our priest, we would never have the gift of the Holy Spirit coming to us. We will see. It is because the most important role of the Holy Spirit when he came down to this earth was to be Jesus' representative, to take Jesus' place down to this earth. We will see it. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit comes, you'll not miss me. With the coming of the Holy Spirit and with his presence on this, on this earth, you will have my presence. It will not make many, many, any difference, Jesus, Jesus said. Now people are asking to me, I'm trying to squeeze in these three, four minutes. Yeah, all of this that you read, it's correct. The book of Acts, chapter 2, yeah, Peter makes very clear, coming of the Holy Spirit and the inauguration of Christ. Yeah, what Ellen White said, it's clear. But where is this in chapters 4 and 5? Do you have your Bibles? Go with me. Just quickly. We already mentioned that the Holy Spirit in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation is referred to symbolically, figuratively, as the seven spirits of God. It's one spirit, but with sevenfold activities, which gives us his universal activities and, 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 and presence. So keep in mind, seven spirits, it means the Holy Spirit in the fullness of its activities and operation among God's people. Actually, the Holy Spirit is introduced in the very beginning of the book of Revelation when we read Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. It says John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Just to make long story short, it's actually a reference to the divine name Yahweh, God who is in the past, God who will be always in the future, and God who is present with us today. So we have the first person of the Godhead, and the second person is the seven spirits of God who are before the throne. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit as the second person of the Godhead. And then, of course, if you go to the following verse, Jesus Christ is mentioned by name. Please, can you 
Pay attention here to this text. Where is the Holy Spirit seen when John writes these words? Before the throne. Are we there? Okay. Let's now move to chapter, chapter 4. Let's move to chapter 4, verse 6. It says, And from the throne proceeds lightnings, thunderings, voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Where is the Holy Spirit seen in chapter 4? Before the throne. Do you see that? Before the throne. Now let's go to chapter 5. What do we have in chapter 5? The enthronement of Christ. What do we read there? Oh, I wish that we have the whole text here. John said, And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Why? The Holy Spirit is not any longer before the throne. Why is now the Holy Spirit suddenly sent down throughout the earth? Do we need explanation for that? No. Because this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Okay, now you'll wonder, what does Ellen White say about that? Let's just read quickly. And this is our final thoughts. Ellen White says, Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that his followers were to receive the promised blessing. For this they were to wait before they entered upon their work. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, he was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents. And Christ was indeed glorified even with the power, with, with the glory which he had with the Father from all eternity. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to his promise, he had sent to the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his followers as a token that he had, as priest and king, received the all authority on heaven and on earth, and was the anointed one over his people. The Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the greatest evidence that our Lord Jesus Christ was enthroned there on the heavenly throne. He is our king and he is our, our priest. In our Seventh-day Adventist terminology that is based on the Bible, we call it the early reign. So what is the early reign all about? We saw how it happened. We saw why on the day of Pentecost. But tomorrow when you come, I have a great surprise for you. Because the concept of the early reign is one of the most misunderstood topics among Adventists. There are many Adventists are waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, forgetting that he came 2,000 years ago. That's why we are praying to him. But why? The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. My final thought is just to tell us that you and me, we don't need to worry about the present. 
we don't need to worry about the future. The destiny in all our lives, present and the future, everything is in God's hands. We are not left alone. Jesus promised to his disciples, I will be with you. How long? How long always? Until the very end of the age. We believe that we live at the end of the age. And Jesus is fulfilling that promise through the Holy Spirit, who is in the heart of each one of us. But what does it mean to our personal lives? You have to be present tomorrow and day after tomorrow, all until Friday. Because we have a very important topic and theme to elaborate on the basis of this. But now we say, what a wonderful Savior. Whenever you feel being put down, whenever you look into the future and it's so gloomy for you, don't forget that our Savior is on the heavenly throne and the presence of the Holy Spirit is a warrant, is a guarantee of all of this. You're not left alone, friends. You're not put down because our Lord cares for each one of us. This is our hope. This is what the Holy Spirit is for us. And this is what the teaching of the Holy Spirit is all about. But tomorrow we will see how really does it apply to our, to, to our lives and what is really the early reign all about. May God bless you. I would like you. If you can bow your heads at this moment, we would like to pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for portraying before our eyes one of the most significant events in the history of the plan of salvation that happened there in heaven at the ascension of our Savior Jesus Christ there in the heavenly sanctuary. Thank you, Father, for being faithful to the promise that you sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that our salvation is sealed. That, that our future is certain and that nobody and nothing in this life is able to separate us from your love. Father, please bless each one of my dear brothers and sisters who are present here at this camp meeting and all others who are supposed to come. Help us that during these days as we are studying your word, that we can come much closer to you. That the realization of who the Holy Spirit is and what it means to our spiritual life can give us new insight into our need and how much we depend on you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for a blessing. Thank you for love. And please be with us during the rest of this day and the rest of this camp meeting, for we pray all of this in the precious name of the one who died on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. May God bless you.